0: Hello friends, welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. James Cantor. He's a clinical psychologist and sexologist specializing in hypersexuality and paraphilias. There are a broad range of things that turn humans on. Some are common, some are uncommon, and some are very illegal. James's study of paraphilias exposes him to some of the world's most interesting and unusual sexual desires with the goal of working out why they even exist. Expect to learn how asexuality could evolve at all, why some able-bodied people feel like they should be amputees, why adults like to be dressed up as babies, the link between left-handedness and child abuse, what James thinks about depression in the trans community, why it's become increasingly impossible to have conversations about dangerous sexual desires, and much more. This episode does get into some pretty spicy and extreme territory when it comes to sexual orientations, and if that is the sort of thing that's going to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, I advise skipping this one, going back and listening to one of the 549 other episodes that are available, and I'll see you on Saturday. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London, finding men's jewelry that doesn't suck is very difficult and Crafted London have nailed it. They're the number one men's jewelry company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. James Cantor. dr james Cantor, welcome to the show pleasure to be here thank you your research area paraphilia and associated phenomena what is Uh, paraphilia
1: uh well i study what makes anybody into whatever it is that they're into uh when, when I started, the big question was, and including for myself, I'm uh, what made me gay? What makes a gay person gay? You know, I, I started with the same curiosity that uh, uh, that we all did. Uh, I just kind of tripped over the course of my career to an opportunity to start asking the bigger version of that question. Never mind gay, what makes, you know, all of the others? How does the brain know what to be attracted to or not to be attracted to? Uh and so that then led me to what, uh, uh, to the paraphilias themselves, which are sexual interest patterns, but not just preferences, not blonde versus brunette or top versus bottom. I mean, people who are, it's meaningful to call these, uh, sexual orientations unto themselves. They show, uh, these are interest patterns like exhibitionists, pedophiles, uh, uh, tuturists, some kinds of cross dressers, when they when they find it sexually arousing, these are profound, profound sexual interest patterns that these people have, and as I say, it seems to show every uh, uh, every sign of being innate and immutable. So what's up with that? So the paraphilias you know we still debate over you know does this one count does that one uh, count but the general idea are these other other than sexual orientation other than male versus female all of the other atypical uh sexual interest patterns the the really really built in practically born with it kind of interest patterns so that that, that I guess is my my non technical uh Uh, my non-technical definition of it, allowing room for we don't
0: exactly know where the boundaries are. What about asexuality, the least sexual of the sexual paraphilias? Yeah.
1: There's no good simple answer. I don't think it's an it. Uh, The term is a bit of a catch-all. People these days especially are kind of mixing up medical language, you know, in a medical diagnosis where we've identified the cause of something with psychiatric diagnosis, which doesn't identify the cause. Psychiatry is different from other branches of medicine. In psychiatry, they label the symptoms. You know, we just called the symptom depression or sadness, depression. But whether it's caused by one thing or another, that doesn't matter. You get the same same diagnosis, as I say. So psychiatry is unlike the rest of medicine in that it labels just the symptoms. So for the paraphilias uh, and the others, that's, as I say, kind of an open question. Exactly where the line goes. When do we diagnose it? When do we not? Is it in the uh, uh, is it in the person's favor? Uh, so it's not. As I say, it's not such a simple uh, question. So for asexuals, well, it's not posing a problem for anyone else, and there can be way more than one thing leading a person to think that that label kind of kind of fits them. Now, it could be somebody just with a low sex drive, you know, but low sex drive is not the upon very sexy label for it. But asexual is something that it's a label they can use, all of a sudden they have a support group and it's people kind of have a can big, wave. Uh, the important part, the part that's very easy to be empathetic for is that it socially tells people how to interact with them. You know, don't start introducing them to potential, you know, partners, you know, that they're not gonna be interested and don't take it personally. So it serves a, can serve a certain legitimate uh, social function. Flip side, there are just regular everyday people with regular everyday insecurities about, you know, whatever it is about their sexual life. And rather than risk rejection, rather than play at that game and risk losing, they adopt the label asexual just to get out of the whole thing. You know, that's not such a healthy reason. You know, if I had such a person in therapy, it'd be reasonable to help a person get over their, their insecurities. Or for some people, especially on the autism spectrum, there are people who have, you know, social skill deficits and it's really social skills training that would lead to more self-confidence. And so they don't need a label uh, of asexual. Uh, And then, you know, people just as they get older and sex drive drops again, will adopt the term kind of as a euphemism for uh, for low sex drive. Uh, So although. They kind of have in common a, a, a signaling to the people around them, you know, how to interact properly or how to interact in a way that they want to be interacted with. Uh, we oughtn't or no scientist should, you know, take it at face value to mean literally that the person lacks a sex drive either. A lot of people can adopt the label for other kinds of reasons. All of which is to say it's not like we have proof that it doesn't exist either. I mean, if you can be attracted to one pattern, attracted to another pattern, I can imagine attracted to neither. But the last one, and again, because of the very strange seat that that I get to sit in, the other one is that somebody's attracted to something unusual that they don't want to cop to. You know, it could be something really, really problematic, like they're uh, attracted to children or they're just attracted to something that right in the particular audience or in front of their family or for whatever reasons so they don't want to be out with it it's not something that they're going to be sharing with anybody outside for example outside of their fetish community so again they will adopt the label asexual to kind of cover for their real uh, uh, for the real story or people don't want to you know admit to themselves what it is that they're into so again they, they give themselves a reason to not be into
0: anything you blew my mind when you mentioned talking about why there seemed to be more child offences coming out of the Catholic Church and priests. That the priesthood, a place where you are, you take a vow of celibacy, you are tending to be away from most of the people. This is a life of service. This is a life of virtue. That would be the kind of place that someone who is trying to potentially, in some circumstances, hide from a sexuality that they're a little bit concerned about might retreat to. I thought, oh, wow, that is such an interesting way to look at why there has been this preponderance in there. And it plays into that as well. Going on to the autism conversation, I'm pretty sure that a bunch of very famous inventors throughout history, Isaac Newton, I'm pretty sure, went through his entire life and remained a virgin. There may have been some... Uh, religious sort of overtones over that, but how much he was using the religiosity as a cope that justified something that was coming out of him that he perhaps didn't want to uh, face. Um, But yeah, two really interesting parallels that I've seen there. Figures from history, high-performing philosophers, a ton of them, engineers, physicists that didn't want to face anything sexual. Is that a byproduct? Is that a cope? Are they hiding? And then the, the priesthood as well, two really interesting examples. Yeah, uh, the uh, the priesthood's a funny one. And, uh, you know,
1: there's no good way to study it in any objective way. There's just so much politics pulling in uh, in every direction, uh, but that some people use it as a got uh, as a retreat. You know, so so my family stops asking me, you know, how come I'm not married to a woman? You know, it's uh, but not only for pedophiles, for, uh, but also regular everyday gay men. Who don't want to deal with being gay, or you know, less now today than prior generations, of course. But same thing. It was a, it was an escape into a, in that context, socially acceptable or socially more acceptable way to still circulate in society, be productive in its way, uh, but not have to. Uh, live, uh, it's living a hidden life, I don't want to say in plain sight, exactly. And for some people, they're denying the truth of it to themselves as much as denying it to the, uh, to the world around them. Uh, so for, you know, the gays, when, you know, the ones who do eventually come out anyway, the pedophiles for whom we find out the hard way, but anybody with any real atypical sexuality, again, it provides the same kind of Escape or cover cover story, I think, is the best uh, is the best term.
0: What's the best explanation that we've got for why male homosexuality exists in humans at all? Oh. Um. This was one of the things that that really first got me into
1: uh, into this main uh, main question. I didn't do very much research in it directly. I, I played a supporting role to uh, uh, to Ray Blanchard. I, I, I was uh, I was his mini me, uh, and he was already well on the way of uh, unraveling uh, unraveling that one. Another just fascinating story, and I just had a background in the brain by sheer accident, ended up doing my internship, you know, at a gender clinic, but it had Ray Blanchard in it. It was one of the chief, you know, scientists pursuing exactly that question. He was looking at brain development. I had a background in the brain. And so just the phenomenon he identified that led to the unraveling uh, is called the older brother effect pure unremarkable. You wouldn't notice it to the naked eye except an epidemiologist studying the data. The more male fetuses a woman has, the more sons she gives birth to, the more likely the latter born kids, males, are to be gay. That is, gay men on average have more older brothers than they should. It's the older brother effect. And it's one of those how could a fetus, how could the development of the brain, What? how could a fetus know how many fetuses came before it? It was a very, but consistent. No matter what what time era that, that Blanchard could find a, a, a data set from, no matter what country, no matter in what context, the older brother effect was was there. Very strange. Eventually, what he was able to figure out is that uh, if you remember, you know, Y fetuses, uh, Y fetuses, uh, male fetuses and only male fetuses carry a Y chromosome, which is foreign to the mother's system. She's formed of two X chromosomes. So far as her body is concerned, a Y chromosome is a foreign material for which her immune system starts to react. So with every passing male fetus is more exposure to they are called, they have a long technical name, the HY histocompatibility antigens. The substances, right, that the mo- mother's body produces to neutralize the proteins that are coming off the Y chromosome, which is supposed to be masculinizing the fetus. So sometimes those anti-male immune system reactions seem to hold back some of the masculinization of the male, and only the male fetuses. And it happens, you know, with every exposure, even to fetuses that were in her body, but she never carried to term. Aborted fetuses uh, or or, uh, 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 miscarriages still in the order they, they should be in. So that's why it runs in families a little bit, but not because homosexuality is inherited, but the maternal immune response is. That is wild. I, even I... though it goes through the women of the family, even though the homosexuality only functions
0: in the males in the family. So do you, as a daughter of a mother that had lots of sons, does the daughter retain that knowledge somehow? Not In a direct way that
1: anybody's been able to uh, find Uh, the best, as I said, the best connection is that, you know, her immune system is related to uh, to her mother's system. And there are large transfers of material between maternal system and and fetus, which is a fascinating, fascinating uh, branch of uh, of biology to itself. Uh, But nobody's found that in that transfer of material and the mother preparing the fetus for its own immune environment, nobody's found that the HY histocompatibility antigens go, uh, uh, goes through it.
0: Why do you think that this would be adaptive? Why would this be around?
1: That's a good question. It could be a side effect. It's easy to imagine that, as I say, it's just a side effect of something powerful about the immune system. And so, you know, it's worth sacrificing you know however many potential grandchildren if the gay ones are less likely to reproduce that the gains from whatever this difference in the immune system offsets the Mm -hmm. decrease in reproducibility later it's a to evolution it's a math game
0: okay so if that's male homosexuality what about lesbians
1: women are always a more complicated when it comes to social stuff For men, I'm grossly exaggerating. For men, you know, sex is a drive, like hunger. There's not a lot we can do about it. For women, again, I'm overstating it a bit. It's more of a mood. It doesn't have quite the same drive. It's awfully dependent on stress and context, expectations for the future, all bound into one great big ball, where for men, it's kind of hot, not, you know, sex with our worst enemy, if they're hot enough, piece of cake. For women, that's just, that's a much more unusual. As I say, for women, it's more of mood. It's more like a mood. Uh, so there are stuff that, so there does seem to be a biological component. And it does seem to be that uh, their brains are shifted in a more masculine direction but there are many uh, more women than men who will refer to contextual parts, relational parts, memories of old relationships or prior abusive relationships. They refer to that, you know, much, much more as contributing. But and it's unclear, is that really contributing to their sexual orientation, the way that men think of theirs, ours? Or is that Just those memories interfere with how easy it is to get into one mood versus another.
0: Yeah, so when when comfort amongst females is such an important part of sex and arousal, something which has predisposed you to feel comfortable may become a part of your sexuality because that comfort is so intrinsically linked. I had a conversation yesterday at lunch with a friend and he has a girlfriend who her first sexual encounter was with one of her female friends when she was in her teens or whatever. They felt comfortable, they felt safe, uh, and she has now rolled forward into a marriage where mm-hmm. she still feels she. The, the apparently the um the husband has absolutely no fears at all that she's ever going to cheat on him with a man. But he does sometimes wonder about what she gets up to when she goes out to on holiday or to Hindus and stuff like that. And she's like they're in a sort of semi open thing in any case. But what she says is. There is something about that degree of comfort that has sort of stayed with her. And given that that was her formative or one of her formative first-time experiences, it does seem like that's left a kind of imprint. Here's another one for you. and I don't know whether you've ever come across this. So I have a friend who is bisexual but heavily lesbian. So she mostly sleeps with women and sometimes sleeps with men. We were talking about birth control. And she said that she'd come off birth control. I asked her what had happened. And she said, oh, my sex drive went through the roof and a bunch of other things. Uh, one other interesting thing that I found was that during my ovulation period, I had a big change in sex drive. I was like, okay, that's interesting. Well, what happened? She says, well, I'm gay for three weeks out of every month. But for one week out of every month, I turned straight again. Have you ever come across this? Yeah. Dude. That blew yeah. my mind. I had to put my fork down. I was like, oh, my God, this is so interesting.
1: Yeah, there, there's, as I said, women are, you know, and fascinating that way, complicated. And there are different, we have one itch. They have different, they have several itches and different itches need scratching in different ways. Uh, also changes uh, for women according to mood or across their uh, their cycles, uh, dom-sub stuff. That sometimes they'll be, you know, in a kinky aggressive kind of mood or in a kinky super sub mood and with other people or in other situations. Or they'll be down with med sub with women. It's there's just this cluster and as I say, and they will have a couple of different ways to roads to Rome. Yes. That's not it. What is it? Whatever.
0: Yeah. I learned about red deer, Scottish red deer. And the fact that when the females come into heat, the males start deploying tons of testosterone and they go from being really docile and friendly with all of their male counterparts to these having these huge antlers and trying to kill all of the other men that they were recently friends with and have been chilling with for the last nine months. Then they go, create a harem, <clears throat> super aggressive, and then the women stop being in heat and then everything goes back to normal again. Given the fact that the behavior of those animals changes so much due to the cascade of hormones it makes complete sense that small relatively small changes in women would happen when their profile of hormones changes it just happens to be more consistent than once every year uh yes all perfectly logical all perfectly
1: plausible although you know we're we're at the far reaches of my, my uh my real expertise uh I've often found it less useful to think about, you know, hormones having this, you know, kind of whatever effect and therefore should have whatever analogous effect, you know, uh, across species. Uh, And more, how would this have helped evolution or against it? It, It's, uh, you know, because, and then the hormones and what increases or decreases whatever behaviors of ours changes species to species, in order for us to fit in whatever our you know evolutionary uh, network is. So again, in that species, right, the offset of killing off some of the other males must have an evolutionary benefit that offsets that. And again, this is the animal hum- husbandry is, is, uh, is not my thing. Right. So there's gotta be some niche that it fits for them. That didn't work for us. You know, I, I, that didn't work for us as we came down from the trees, but what that might be I, I i guess i just uh hesitate to uh make all animals analogous to all other anim- animals you know disembedded from the evolutionary pressures that got us there
0: getting on to some more murky territory what do you think most people misunderstand when it comes to pedophilia
1: oh uh same as when i got into uh into the field uh that people confuse pedophilia for a synonym for child molestation. Uh, Because people uh, uh, conversations are only about the behavior, people have trouble separating that from the sexual attraction pattern. Uh, Again, for any listeners who haven't heard it before, uh, uh, pedophilia is the sexual attraction pattern itself. These are people who are genuinely sexually attracted to children the way the rest of us are uh, to adults. But doesn't mean they ever did anyone. You know, uh, it doesn't mean they committed any crime or hurt uh, anyone. They, they just have the sexual attraction pattern, you know, first to their own peers when they're young. But as they mature, they continue to be attracted to whatever age uh, that was where the rest of us, you know, develop attracted uh, attractions to adults. Uh, and vice versa isn't one to one either. The people who commit the offenses, the actual child molesters are usually not Pedophiles, uh, incest offenders, for example, are usually not into kids. They're using the kid as, as a as a surrogate and they prefer adults, but don't have access to an adult. Roughly about a third, as I say, of offenders against children are genuinely uh, are genuine pedophiles. Uh, not so for uh, for child porn. The people who are collecting child porn are genuinely into kids even though they rarely would have ever touched a kid. Their, their offense is that, you know, indirect kind of offense, you know, where, where the victim is the, the, the unconsenting uh, uh, subject of the picture. Uh, so the biggest misunderstanding is that, you know, a pedophile is not a criminal. Before he committed an offense, he was an inno- innocent person, and that's the day we need to get to him. These are people who are usually struggling with it. They know something's wrong and we want them to be able to come in for therapy, sex drive, reducing medications, you know, wh- whatever it will take to help this person, you know, stay cr- uh, crime, free. Uh, unfortunately, because people automatically associate, oh, this is a criminal waiting to happen. They end up, you know, bringing all of the stigma and all of the condemnation which really just drives them underground. So instead of having them, you know, in therapy, getting whatever they need, they're all alone and desperate. Uh, Which which is crazy to me, you know, that's just that's making the problem worse. Uh, So that's a very long answer. But the biggest misunderstanding, uh, uh, as I say, is that people have tr- uh, because people only hear about pedophilia in the context of molestation. People, you know, have trouble seeing that these are overlapping but non-identical
0: categories. Well, there's such a visceral response to those stories, right? And they do get a good bit of press coverage when it comes out. And I suppose what would be newsworthy about here is a non-offending paedophile who sits quietly in his house. Like, Why is that going to make headlines? No one's, no one's writing an article about that, really, unless oh. it was a very interesting expose that said there is this group of people out there that are worthy of sympathy because of the sort of difficulty that they have to go through to keep their type of sexuality under control in terms of enacting it. Uh, so when it comes to what causes paedophilia to arise – How much biological, environmental influence is going on here, and and why does that happen?
1: Uh, We have really solid evidence for the biological contributions, but no solid evidence for learned kinds of influences. I mean, we can't rule it out. I mean, we can never, you know, in science, permanently rule anything out. It's always possible for, you know, future evidence to say anything. But so far, we have biology, you know, right down to brain scans and clues leading to developmental episodes that happened before birth. Uh, The biggest one is handedness. In regular everyday populations, you know, somewhere between 8 to 10 percent of people are uh, are non-right-handed so far as brain organization is uh, concerned, ambidextrousness goes together with left-handedness. So it's about eight to 10% of the regular population, but like 35% of the pedophiles, absolutely enormous. There's only one thing that makes somebody non-right-handed, you know, and outside of old Catholic schools, they didn't make you non-right-handed, they went the other way. The only way that that, larger proportion of people are non-right-handed is if something is different about basic brain organization and that the hemispheric dominance of the brain is established by the end of the first trimester.
0: That's what causes handedness.
1: That's what causes handedness. uh, So a uh, right-handed person is left hemisphere dominant. A left-handed person, and I'm very left-handed, could go either way. Uh, It's roughly, again, about a third of them, it's cross hemisphere. And for some, it's just kind of 50-50. Uh, it's just during early brain development, it, it, it one grows faster than the other. But if something happens during development that gets in the way, malnutrition of the mother, stress or something, the other hemisphere then will try to catch up for the lost time of the first one. It takes over some of the functions that the original hemisphere would have had, and handedness is, is one of them. So large differences in a population of handedness, again, is a clue that something Maternal stress, something happened early in development, and we're just seeing one of these echoes of, a you know, innocuous behavior. But it's because it's pretty innocuous that we can detect it pretty early in adulthood. But it still tells us something very, very important that was going on before birth. So between the combination of the brain scans showing us exactly where things are different now and findings like handedness and other clues saying whatever was different, whatever links of these chains eventually led to pedophilia, the first links were before birth. So when you put all of this together, it's, as I said, this is a biological thing. Could there be things learned in childhood? Sure, but nobody's come up with that kind of smoking gun evidence where there's just no other way uh, to explain it. Different for child molestation. Childhood events, stress, crises, tragedy can lead during life, during young life, can lead a person to be disinhibited. You know, impulsive, unwilling, you know, antisocial themselves. I was hurt, so it's really not so bad if I do something. You know, so a person who has an atypical impulse, if they came from an abusive background, you know, that kind of thing can be learned. But of course, for pedophiles, the ones that we Find out about are the ones who committed crimes who were more likely to have come from an antisocial background, you know, so that that so the association is stronger because that's where, you know, that's the area we get to see. But there's this great, big, dark, unknown, never reported. And it's not like they're going to be, you know, clicking yes on any Internet surveys anytime soon, you know, so there's just no way we know they exist, but there's no way for us to guess how many.
0: Why would it be the case that the mechanism that mediates handedness would also play a role in what somebody is attracted to in terms of age? And does that mean that there are more gay people who are left-handed, more people into sub-dom fetishes and stuff? Does it correlate with anything else? Uh, Excellent question. Uh, The first
1: part, why would they be connected? They're not connected in any This leads to this,
0: leads to this. I wasn't this accusing kind all left handed people of, of being sexual deviants, no. It,
1: it, everybody always has to say that. And we also have to do the homosexuality pedophilia distinction caveat, also. Everybody. Caveat, caveat, caveat. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it, it, there's no direct link. It's more. Uh... Oh, actually, it's a great example. Uh, you remember that old and basically true. Chestnut, you know, correlation doesn't mean causation. We recite that almost reflexively. But what nobody points out is, well, what does it mean? There are three possibilities. When X correlates with Y, X could be causing Y, Y could be causing X, or the one everybody forgets, there's a Z that causes both X and Y so they come and go in frequency together but there's no relationship between them it's because they both come from the same so a lot of these correlates that people talk about have that third variable thing neither one is causing the other even though that's always everybody's gut reaction if they're trying to endorse whatever public public policy we want more of this we want less of that and so they start arguing for connections where most of it is sorry, there is no connection. It's because both come from this other thing. So the associations between hemispheric dominance, handedness, and uh, uh, sexuality appear to be one of those. Neither one really is related to the other. It's just that if something unusual goes on during brain development, handedness is one of the things that changes, and sexual interest pattern is one of the things that changes. But there's no... Relationship between the two. That said, handedness is usually the first thing we look at whenever we examine any new sexual interest pattern that comes to attention. Exactly because it does seem to be different across the broad spectrum of them. It is higher in gay men than straight men, not in uh, uh, but not lesbians versus straight women. It is higher again in the pedophiles versus the non-pedophiles, and it's higher in a couple of the other paraphilias. So again, not that doesn't mean any of these is related to any of the others, it's all that same Z, it's all that same something went different during development, and these are just the many different sexual interest patterns that can change, and handedness which can change, oh, and handedness which can change, and one of the triggers of that change is testosterone. In utero? Uh, in utero. Again, first, mostly first trimester, mostly, well, that one's really the end of the first trimester. And it's also why more men are non-right-handed than women.
0: Because they are more heavily mediated by testosterone.
1: Yep. And so the process to masculinize puts the brain at risk for a couple of things. Males are expendable, uh, expendable in a population. If you lose, pick a number. If you lose 10% of men, there's more than enough sperm to go around. But if you lose 10% of women, you've lost 10% of the reproductive potential. So, so all fetuses essentially start female, not in the way trans activists like to say, uh, but developmentally, you know, things don't start shifting into the male direction the Y chromosome and proteins don't kick in until a couple of months in. And sexual interest pattern is one of the things that seems to change. So where we would start with a relatively broad mood pattern that women have in order to bring that over. So instead of being attracted to men, look for curvy reproductive age. So we males have to go through that process. Females don't. We kind of start our brains kind of start in that process. So that seems to be why so many more males have these atypical sexualities, but women don't, because they didn't have to go through that process. This is like this is their right handedness, where for some of us, we go through that process. The process isn't perfectly debugged. So we lose a couple
0: of percent to these atypical patterns. How much conscious control do people have over what arouses them or what they're sexually attracted to? this isn't acting on it. This is what arouses them. I want to say zero. I mean,
1: we can distract ourselves if there's something hot in the environment that we don't want to be caught looking at, or, you know, in certain situations, we don't want to accidentally give ourselves an erection in an inappropriate time or place. Uh, but that's not, you know, that that's just, that's not changing or not being interested in it. it. It's avoiding the, avoiding, or at least postponing the stimulus. Very often that just becomes, you know, masturbation meat for later that night. Uh, but really there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be, uh, especially for men. We can be attracted to stuff despite ourselves, you know, somebody other than our monogamous partner, somebody other than whatever socially approved stimulus. You know, that that happens all the time. But no, we, we, we can't help if whatever your favorite flavor is, for me, it's ice cream. I can't will myself not to like ice cream. I might have favorite flavors, but...
0: So when it comes to looking at pedophiles... There is, as far as you can see from your work, no conscious control over your ability to decide what you're going to be aroused by. You do have conscious control over whether you decide to act on that, and that's the line that you've drawn between child molestation and paedophilia. But, that, I mean, this was something that I learned about this girl that I was dating at university f- 12 years ago or something, it was a doctor, and she said, you know, I... I if I could make one change to the way that the world views other people, uh, one of the ones I think that would be interesting to discuss would be that pedophiles need more sympathy. And uh, my immediate response as someone that was uninitiated was like, why, how Uh, in the UK, there's like a, a big deal about nonce radar, about looking out for, to catch a predator. And there's a, a bunch of people like that. Yeah. And I was like, after It doesn't take very much thought to realize that if you're someone that doesn't have conscious control over what you're attracted to, and you're burn cursed with a sexuality that the entire world is going to condemn you for, that you can't talk to anybody else about, and that you can't act on, I mean, that's that's a kind of living hell. It's hard to imagine
1: a worse curse, I mean, imagining, you know, again, I grew up, you know, gay in the 80s and 90s, you know, and I'm just lucky not to have grown up in the 50s. Now, this, you know, makes that into a cakewalk. Uh, The whole conversation seems like it's gotten harder to have now. I've been having this conversation. I've been doing this kind of research for we're going on 25 years. There was, in its eccentric kind of way, a lot more tolerance then than now. There was a lot more in media. We didn't have social media uh, yet, which is, I think, linked. There was a, oh, now I get it. And people immediately went, oh, if people didn't choose this, then it was a very simple step to well they didn't choose anything and all we can ever do with anyone is find whatever proportions and fantasies according to what we can do da, 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 right down to it's not possible to do some of these either because it'll hurt somebody or it's just not possible in physics and so we find some fantasy way you know and that's you know one rule one ethic one pr- and one principle to rule them all you know so there was uh, that was a story that was possible was possible. Uh, I'm I'm getting this award. It hasn't been officially presented to me yet. I'm getting this award, distinguished contribution from the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers in no small part for having brought this conversation uh, uh, to public light. But it's, even though it was accepted then, several documentaries made about it. It's a harder conversation now because that conversation takes 60 seconds of nuance for the, oh, now I get it. That doesn't fit in a tweet. And nobody really wants the correct answer, even though everybody else is saying, you know, that's actually how we're going to defeat actual child molestation or even if we find a way if we can figure out what in the brain it is maybe we can prevent it from developing in the first place right everybody's saying the answers actually there but people are using social media just for its virtue, sig- virtue signaling i'm going to show you what a child protector i am and blah, 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 blah. and they're making the situation worse by driving underground the people we want coming in and getting into therapy and so on. So because I find there's much less honest conversation and social media is just, as I say, the virtue signaling, the message is a much harder one to get out today than it was 25 years ago. I have no idea where we're going to go with it, And it cuts across political spectrum. It's not left or right. It's attention seekers, no matter what motivation they have for the attention, both left and right. They pride themselves on just how bad they can be to the pedophiles.
0: Both sides making the problem worse. I'm going to guess that the concern many people have is that by opening up this conversation and making it less taboo, you are somehow giving a stamp of approval or at least relinquishing a stamp of disapproval in in some form or another, uh, misunderstanding about the difference between a non-offending and an offending pedophile, and that as soon as you don't condemn it in the worst possible way, with the most vehemently that you can, that's the same as being complicit or supporting or... That's... That's the story they give.
1: I'm a little more cynical, a little too cynical to accept that on face value. Again, because basic humans haven't changed now versus 25 years ago. What has changed is now when they say it, they're saying it in front of the entire universe. I don't think they genuine, I, I don't think the genuine fear is if we don't condemn it, it's they're going to feel free to do whatever they want. It's that if I don't condemn it, I'm not going to look good.
0: Mm. It's an opportunity to stand on the shoulders. Virtue
1: signaling, exactly. It's it, Nobody, you know, except this idiot, is going to say, hang on a second, you're actually making it worse. Right, there are very few people sitting in a place to be able to say, you know, They're only a handful of experts and we're the ones who can say actually treating them like human beings is what's going to cause is what prevention is going to come from. If you give somebody nothing to lose, they're going to act like somebody with nothing to lose.
0: Yes. Yeah. I had a conversation with Andrew Gold and he went to the German German group. Uh, the
1: prevention project dunkelfeld
0: yes uh and there's three risk characteristics i think the first one is being around children the second one is being inebriated and the third one is feeling rebuffed from society like you have no one to turn to i'm like well you know it's a personal choice to control the first two although you could environmentally assist i suppose by stopping them from going to an off license or a children's pool but the third one is almost exclusively done by society to the offenders and yeah I, I i mean that's a to say that your response to this conversation is potentially causing greater externalities to the exact group that you're supposed to be trying to defend and protect is a like it's a difficult point to get across right it's the same reason similar sort of reason to you're much nicer than i am I'd, look, I'd, I'd it was to possible
1: to get the point across 25 years ago the difference now is so much of the conversation is people who don't care what the point is they just want to look like they are you know whatever hero badge protecting children doing the research and the work that no they Not for them have perfect confidence in their
0: gut reaction here's an interesting thing so most victim groups at the moment are one of the easiest ways to give yourself the status of empathetic performative carer is to stand up for a victimized group and yet it seems like nobody is choosing to do it for this particular group that if you manage to reframe the debate you may be able to use the dynamic that you're seeing online of people wanting to foam finger wave for a group and look at how virtuous I am because of that. If you were able to change the way that the conversation is framed, you may actually be able to utilize that desire in a positive way. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I guess you've got to redirect the stream incredibly accurately and very carefully. Uh
1: I think two things are going on and they're not going to let each other exist. One uh, is, again, when it was possible to walk people through to the aha, uh, it's often very helpful to go through step by step. As I said, start with plain vanilla gay go through, you know, whatever, the different kinds of kinks. Well, what about, you know, well, what's well, possible on, why for don't them? You give us,
0: why don't you give us the, let's say that there's someone that's still slightly unconvinced and you've got your, whatever, 60 seconds or two minutes to walk someone through from start to finish to get to the oh, aha moment. What is it?
1: Uh, again, it's pieces of what we've uh, said already, starting with a basic idea that sexual orientation, especially for men, is a hardwired, innate, immutable, they didn't pick it or we didn't pick it and it's not going to change. thunk Now, so what are we there for? You know, what means a civil right? Are we therefore allowed to get married? Yeah, sure. Have sex and absolutely with anyone we want. Well, no, they have to be consenting. Anywhere we want, well, not exactly public places. There are restrictions. Okay, and uh, kinksters. All right, we're now playing with the meaning of consent because part of the hotness is that it's non-consenting and so on, but we have to make sure it for real is. So it becomes a little bit more complicated, but we can overcome that to make sure nobody's getting hurt in a way that they don't mean to be getting hurt. All right, somebody who's turned on, it's a rare, rare and fascinating sexual interest uh, pattern, apotemnophilia. These are people who feel like amputees trapped in the body of a four-limbed person. And they want and try and sometimes succeed at having a limb taken off. And if they're otherwise, you know, mentally healthy and productive in society, there are indeed successful, productive cases of it. Okay. well, if it's an adult control over their own body, if we don't do it, they're going to hurt themselves anyway. But the basic idea that it's built in, they didn't pick it. It's easy to be uh, sympathetic for that, uh, 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 for such a person. It's easy to uh, think, you know, uh, uh, there, but by sheer luck, you know, go I, I could have been born with that combination too. What, what, what do I wish society would have, uh, would have done with me? And so we get to the more and more stigmatized, more and more yucky and more and more uncomfortable. And sooner or later, we end up with pedophiles where Now we're talking, there are zero potential partners or situations we can create that would be safe for, or in which there can be a consenting partner. So we're going to go give range harder and harder until we, sooner or later, or, you know, some real, real uh, 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 people with sexual sadism, again, the fantasies would hurt another person. Can't be done. So now it's a matter of, Fiction, fantasy, movies, written stories, cartoons, dolls, uh, uh, whatever. So once a person starts with a, again, plain vanilla gay, you're just born with it. Well, where's the line between which one of these do we help? Again, we use consent and harm to another person to decide which of these we can act out and which ones have to stay in fantasy. But where in this line do are we switching from, yeah, okay, you're allowed to share drawings versus not. What Scientifically, of course, there is no objective line. You know, so, so far as society is concerned, well, if we're switching to fantasy, so nobody's getting hurt anywhere on the line, all right, so it's not out. Sympathy because I could have been born that way too, well, again, that also works for the whole... The only thing left is stigma. Okay, so we're okay with them for as long as they're not stigmatized. Wait a second. That isn't that how we got LGBTQ add your letters to begin with? And this is where my you know most infamous tweet ever is is when I start challenging people, if it's not just according to stigma, well then if we don't include P we're hypocrites. What, what's you're saying? We stigmatize it up to my group and no further. We stigmatize it only when it becomes popular and no further. Well, that's not leadership. That's not rights principles. That's just this year's new version of what's popular and this year's fashion. And, but it's hypocritical to boot when it now, as I say, and I know exactly how that's taken people, you know, like taking that little thing and saying, Oh my God, a pedophile apologist. It's just that this is entire, I hesitate to say rainbow, but let's go, you know, wide, wide range, according to stigmatized, stigmatized, not stigmatized. And, you know, I can understand why some of these uh, got stigmatized. Uh, But if That's the only reason, as long as they keep it in fantasy. What, what, all right, what's the objective other way to decide that doesn't end up with us being hypocrites? And by the way, for the people acting out on the ones that they can't act out on, you know, if we take away the compromise masturbation toys, again, we're just making them more. Desperate and congratulating ourselves for stigmatizing it so much we drove it underground where nobody can do anything with it. They are happy. Uh,
0: uh, Do you actually think that the P should be an LGBTQ?
1: I use that phrase and I use it purposefully to be provocative. But the question I always want to provoke and what I wanted to provoke is what exactly does it mean to be in there? Popular? Well, it formed because it wasn't popular. Is it a group of, well, didn't have any choice, just do the best you can with what you have. Again, you know, it, it's, it, it, I'm, you know, again, openly gay myself. I'm very aware of the ancient history and ancient of, of the history of it. But, just shoving the stigma down to the next group further down the stigmatization list?
0: Yeah, I guess it, it feels a little bit like uh people that use the, if you're feminist, then you should be pro-male as well as pro-female because feminism is supposed to be for equality. The question around what is the LGBT group for, is it for including... uh non-typical sexual orientations into a movement so that they feel less alone. Uh, if I, I don't know what the broad philosophy, I don't even know if there is one, uh, but if that was the case, then I don't know. Maybe there is a case to, to talk about that. I can see why there would be, uh, among many, many, many reasons why people would push back against that, uh, the existing vestigial concern that some men that are gay are secretly pedophiles that are hiding it. And that lumping P in with G would be uh, a little bit close to home.
1: I think a lot of people have a lot of
0: different reasons.
1: Uh, and again, because now in the social media age, it's disproportionately the number of people who, who are just use it for their own virtue signaling. Uh, there are also people who, of course, are victims of child molestation. They don't know and don't really care if their you know, perpetrator was genuinely a pedophile or not. Doesn't matter to such a person. Can I blame them for having trouble separating? I have nothing but sympathy for, uh, for that situa- uh, for the situation. Uh, but I, I think where a lot of people get. I think for a lot of people, the, the conversation they're not having is that uh, uh, to so many folk being in the LGBTQ alphabet translates necessarily to a specific set of rights. Now, they're often really thinking gay rights can get married, gays in the military in the US, you know, I, I can get my wedding cake made at whatever baker I want, you know, just basic civil rights. Uh, but if that's it, well, then why do we have B in there? they already had half of those. The only part that's relevant to the B's are the parts that are like the G's anyway. Well, do the T's belong in there? Because, you know, GLB doesn't need any surgery for any of this, doesn't matter. Okay, so the asexuals, what rights is it that the asexuals are going for? Right, so, right, so people just kind of stick in, uh, add to the letters just to show off how many letters they know. Really, it's just a list of, you know, look how hip I am groups that are supposed to uh, uh, that are supposed to be cool to be either a part of or to recognize use of. But mostly people actually in their heads are thinking basic civil rights and are just adding on other letters, as I say, just out of pedant, uh, just out of being pedantic. Uh. To me, it's a list of the actual atypical sexualities who vary in a wide and broad way in their needs and their features. For some, it's getting married. For asexuals, that doesn't matter. For bisexuals, it only half matters. For intersexuals, it even depends on the kind of intersexual you are. For cross-dressers, it means I'm not exactly sure... And for some people, it means can we not condemn them at a 10 at, you know, every time we hear of them, drive them underground and instead make it possible for them to get therapy instead of passing mandatory uh, uh, reporting laws. Right. And so it's to me just this constellation of different ways to be sexually different, each of which has its own needs and features. I'm the one who sounds LGBTQ and everybody else is. You're only allowed in the group if you make me look good. Uh, Isn't that the popularity contest we were supposed to be fighting against? People are only willing to fight for a group after
0: it looks good. Well, I mean, you see certainly a, a part of that with every month when Pride Month comes up or every year when Pride Month comes up and you see that... AMD Technology Associates in America changes their profile photo to a rainbow-colored flag, but that the Middle East division doesn't change. And the same thing goes for Mercedes-Benz and BMW and all of these different companies. Uh, Well, why? Well, it's because it's a cheap virtue signal to fight a war where the battle's already been won and where it's still to be done. And maybe this is new territory, maybe at some point in the future this will. But I I do think that, you know, to try and think of something like applied here, there would be a way potentially to utilize the performative empathy desire that we have at the moment that's prevalent on the internet to weaponize that toward this group and to utilize that so that people actually feel like it is something that's virtuous to be done. But there is a hell of a lot of stigma to get out of the way first. So going back, going back to the actual behavior, I know from speaking to Diana Fleischman, that there are hebephilia and what's the, is the what, what's the other one that isn't hebephilia? What's before hebephilia? e Yep. And is the one before that? Uh, for adults, teleophilia. Right. Okay. Explain what those are and what are the age brackets that are typical for uh, pedophiles to be attracted to?
1: Yep. Uh, it sounds much more technical than, uh, than it needs to be. Uh, but as you might imagine, when we do research in these populations, you know, there are ranges, you know, there are ones who are attracted to very young kids, prepubescent kids, you know, uh, up to about age 10. How Those rare is that? Would, Uh, relatively rare. Uh, 10 to 15 percentage, depending on how you measure them. It's not like e- they they check these off on a survey. So usually we kind of infer it from their sexual offense pattern from uh, uh, from child porn on their computer or the most important and the most objective way is uh, something called a phallometric test. Uh it's essentially, you know, laboratory t- uh, laboratory test. We put a blood pressure cuff on their penis and show them stimuli of adults, children, male and female and record what they react to. Very sensitive, very accurate test.
0: How do you get showing a s- research participant images of children to judge the arousal response past an ethics board? Uh
1: It's. I want to say more historical at this point than anything else. Uh, The lab doing this work was uh, founded by Kurt Freund, who was doing it in the 1950s and 60s, predating ethics boards. And he was, you know, working with sex offenders and demonstrated the accuracy of the test and how it was uh, superior to the kind of clinical opinions that uh, that physicians would uh, uh were making psychiatrists were making so of course he continued doing research on it continued publishing on it including information about its a uh, diagnostic accuracy uh so uh with that that was sufficient for the ethics board to yep continue to you know continue to do the uh to do the research also it was completely transparent to the correctional facilities most of the people taking the test were sex offenders already convicted and being released to parole and probation and then the test was part of a clinical decision to decide, you know, is this a genuine pedophile for whom we would use sex drive reducing medications and the kinds of therapies associated with helping them deal with it? Or was this an incest pattern, somebody with, you know, loose boundaries or disinhibited or drug using and so those are the kinds of ways to help this person not commit uh, an offense. So it was a clinical test in a correctional setting. And again, transparent to uh, each of the several ethics committees, the police themselves and so on, uh, and even predated, uh, uh, predated the, uh, the, board, uh, the board.
0: OK, so under 10, round about 10 to 15 percent. Yep. Uh, are, are definite pedophiles
1: into prepubescent kids. Then, if they're into pubescent kids, roughly ages 11 to 14, you know, is the next chunk of them. And those are the ones that we call hebophiles. And in doing research, in order to try to figure out, is there a pattern here related to, uh, to age interest pattern? You know, if we have now three points, we can start making a line. If I have just pedophiles and non pedophiles, I just have two points. But if I have three points, now I get to start seeing patterns even though only a relatively few of them are gold-plated solid pedophiles uh, then the group after that again not much of a uh, uh, of a corrections problem but into 15 16 year olds and uh, those were called e files uh, and the age of consent was, I think, it was 14 until about 15, 20 years ago. So again, it wasn't illegal, so it never really came, came to clinical attention. Then the sexually attracted to regular everyday adults, 17 and up in, uh, uh, in the lab where I did this work, that was teleophilia, and then way at the other end, which really should have become my next research uh, research uh, question, gerontophilia.
0: Oh, like grandma and grandpa wow yep how Into common daddies. is that have you got any idea uh seems to
1: be a handful of percent but it's really really tough it's tough to tell uh it's tough to tell and it's tough to tell even when it's genuine i mean how much of it is sexual attraction mm. how much of it is you know kind of gold digging mixed in uh and how much of it, especially for young people, is really something that doesn't get talked about, and I wish I had the time to write about, is especially for young people, uh, if they're into something different, young people are also into a broad range of stuff. Just the color flesh is good enough. You know, a gr- group of pubes and boys can ma- get erections and masturbate in each other's company, you know, without effort. Not a whiff of gay uh, uh, about any of them, it's just right. When, Sex drive is so high that and any any devil do you. But as we mature and grow older, it really starts to have to be our thing in order to work. And so I think that narrowing, or as we get older and our sex drive decreases, it has to be close to our favorite thing in order to...
0: Got to hit the bullseye.
1: Right. So I think some people perceive the... Uh, well, I could do anything, you know, and so an older person or younger person at the periphery when we're young and our sex drive is high, but we're in, if we're in a phase of life where it has to be our favorite thing, you know, it, it stops being. So I have to wonder uh, uh, how many of these uh, uh, older, younger couples are really a younger person just who hasn't yet
0: mm. well, I narrowed mean, in. Maybe we need to start to take the young playmate models that Date the 70 year old billionaire with a, a little bit more of a pinch of salt, perhaps, if they're one of these gerontophilias or whatever the older attracted to older people think, perhaps they need their movement as well. Perhaps there needs to be two G's. I don't know. Oh. Again,
1: they're adults, you know, do what they like. Uh, but it's rare in women. Again, for women, the, the, the look of the person is just one thread in a complicated ball of whack. So if the person, you know, and and confidence is often a big part of it. And the, the, how much it's money is up to question, but a lot of the confidence and security that comes along with money is often a big attractant.
0: What is the common, uh, offending uh, the, the gender of the, the, uh, person that's usually being, uh, imagined if it's a male pedophile is it tending to still be heterosexual majority
1: heterosexual but not as much of a majority as you would guess uh for offenders against adults practically all against women uh for offenders against children 60 percent-ish you know so it's majority or female
0: but not Really, the almost exclusive and uh, significantly overrepresented in terms of male-to-male attraction.
1: Correct. Uh, still, some question why uh, there is some truth to a person who's a aty- sexually atypical one way is often sexually atypical in other ways. So, if somebody's attracted to children, you know, they're closer to fifty-fifty than the you know two-three percent, ninety-seven percent for regular adult gays. Uh, Another part of it is that there's just less sexual differentiation in prepubescent children. If your brain is attracted to, you know, a childlike form, change a haircut, there's not much morphological difference between a seven-year-old boy and girl but there's a huge morphological difference you can see it you know across the room between a 20 year old you know young man young woman uh so it's also easy to imagine that the brain just doesn't care as much if it's attracted to children as when it's attracted to
0: adults because the that shapes should, are that's dimorphism yeah interesting it, okay so this is a conversation that i had about a year ago and i i continue to try and have it in the right company when i can are child sex dolls ethical in your view uh
1: yes in the in that i've never heard and i've been a part of many such debates i've never heard anybody give me any kind of an argument that holds water it's either oh my god that's going to cause pedophilia and i have a stack of brain scans that says no it won't or they're just kind of grossed out, which is not an ethical concern. So what do the brain scans tell you? Uh, again, the way that the brain is different and the way that it formed, this isn't anything a person chose. It's not a person, uh, anything a person can re-choose or roll the dice again. These are not areas or volumes of the brain that change with exercise or you know dyslexia skills. Uh, These are, as I say, like in every meaningful way is like a sexual orientation. It's just kind of built in, born with it. And all we can do is accommodate it. So if we have something that might help, no good evidence that it'll hurt. And the only arguments anybody can give is their emotional discomfort. Well, if emotional discomfort were a good enough reason, we'd be back to the anti-gay days.
0: Do you have any evidence to say that it's not a gateway drug?
1: Um, Evidence to say that it's not? That's not a question science can answer. Uh, It's called proving the null hypothesis. In science, we start with these things are not related until somebody shows that they are it's not possible to prove that things are not related but you would be able because to s- it's always possible yes. that somebody later will produce evidence that there is so as let's i say see, but-
0: let's say that you introduced a bunch of child sex dolls into a, a non offending group of pedophiles and you then saw a greater increase in the number of real uh, the amount of real world harm that went on because of the introduction of them
1: there's uh, nobody's ever Seen that kind of pattern, but I'm not sure any jurisdiction yet has had a situation where they weren't available. All of a sudden, there was whatever legal precedent. Now they are available. So all of a sudden, there are 10,000 of them, and we can look for an uptick. There's never been that kind of natural experiment the predominant the only offense which happens in any frequency that that co-occurs in any frequency is uh total pornography use downloading hoarding
0: Mm. uh
1: when somebody uh, there are people who just you know through internet stings that's the extent of their crime you know usually there's a very very thorough investigation of you know any children in that guy's environment, and rarely do they find anybody who is uh, 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 physically or one-on-one interfered with it, that relatively rare. The other way around happens with some uh, co-occurrence. When an actual hands-on offense comes to light, and then they go through the guy's computers, then, as I say, more often, a couple of percent of the time, a, a substantial chunk of those they will find a child born. So if we were going to guess, our best educated guess would be a similar, would be a similar pattern, that it would be elevated. Somebody willing to break a law is also going to be willing to break a smaller law, if I can call a child offense that, but to do the relatively innocuous things before they go the distance. Yes. But of the ones who, right, Find, I'll say, a pro-social, you know, fantasies, written stuff, fiction, whatever. Somebody who finds an inoffensive way of doing it. Nobody's found a connection going the other way.
0: That's interesting to think about the fact that a, a fiction, a, a story which is written, or I guess illustrations as well, perhaps is a way. Well, uh, drawings. Yes drawings would be a way to I mean it's a difficult question to work out should there be a, an ethical no externality way to help people in this community suffer less whilst minimizing real-world harm that's a that's one of the most difficult questions ethically that I can think of Yup. And it doesn't fit in a tweet. does not fit in a tweet. No, 260 characters (laughs) is not long enough for that. But it's a fascinating consideration that, okay, do you want people to suffer unnecessarily? And as
1: I say, it's the final domino in the series because the entire sexual, again, I'll use the word spectrum, of everybody's whatever they're into, all of the kinks, this is the hardest one. If we can unravel this one, all the others... Or, I don't know if diluted is the right word, but a uh, simpler, less fraught version of this toughest one.
0: Let's delve into the spiciest one then. What about people who feel like they're living in the wrong body? What's going oh, on there? Yeah.
1: Never in my life. Did, I, I shouldn't say that. The biggest thing that surprises me by, by the... Trans controversies is how fast they've taken over. I mean, we've seen other situations in healthcare and medical healthcare where the people who were supposed to be in charge and making sure things stick to the evidence there have been slips in the past. Multiple personalities, you know, the satanic panic, the the recovered memories. And even physical medicine, stents, meshes, uh, feeding babies formula instead of uh, 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 mothers nursing their children. I mean, medicine has, for some situations, made this mistake before. I was surprised, alerted shocked you know to see one happen you know in i want to say that i was surprised to see one happen, you know in my own field but you know it's sex we have so many so controversial issues you know it's always a matter of time uh but the thing that surprised me is that uh unlike you know uh, breastfeeding and recovered memories and so on how fast this one pretty literally went viral that's the thing that shocked me how quickly it's uh it's moved uh People uh, uh, the particular phrase uh, being born in uh, in uh, in the wrong body, you know, perfectly reasonable here and there as a uh, as a metaphor. But people are taking metaphors as literal truths. People are taking subjective evidence and making decisions on it that we normally would reserve for the most solid and objective evidence. You know, we're sending into surgery, you know, to operate and remove healthy tissue, but giving it, you know, the same bar of evidence that we would use for taking out a tumor. You know, it's uh, all of which is on top of, even though everybody, you know, keeps saying, oh, you know, you need mental health professionals and you need a robust diagnosis. Nobody knows how to do that. We can't predict which of these kids, if any, or of what proportion will benefit versus not. So we have the least knowledge, the least outcomes, and the least ability to correctly pick out which one in these hundred will benefit. And we're applying the most dramatic interventions available to us. Uh, now, I'm not an ideologue. I mean, it's I often have been one of the advocates for transition for adults who have lived part of their life, know what they're sacrificing but we had much more solid evidence for them than for children but we're treating child cases as if we had the level of evidence and the objective you know reliable indications that we just don't have if in the future we do great if we come up with a good way to pick out the correct one and not misdiagnose the other 99 great but we're not there yet I'm we're ge- operating on the wrong ones
0: i'm gonna guess as well that because this has had such rapid takeoff especially when it comes to transitioning children we have very little if basically no evidence to look at what the outcomes are like long term for children who go through gender reassignment surgery or who take hormone blockers to stop themselves going through puberty or to limit puberty once it begins okay, what are the life outcomes in terms of satisfaction like for these children when they become adults? And, you know, th- this is a political football that is easy to be kicked around by whichever side. You know, the right will happily roll out somebody that wants to detransition and say that they should have gone through a ton more consent. And then the left will roll out some young 14-year-olds that took their life because they felt like they weren't whatever. And you just go, okay, I, I want to try and cut through some of the bullshit here. Um, I guess that, looking at what happens over longer-term studies would be one way to do that, take a longitudinal study of it. But given that we don't allow children to vote, smoke, drink, have sex, drive a car, in the UK, you can't buy an energy drink until you're 16 years old. You can't buy a Red Bull until you're 16. You can't have sex, but you can change your gender. Like that, that to me, it there is a risk that you're running in trying to find out whether this is right or not, in allowing a big swath of children to go through something which could potentially damage them. But on the other side of that, what if this turned out to be like the the paedophile debate that we were having earlier on? And it's, oh, well, maybe the outcomes in this are absolutely great. I don't think that that's going to be the case. I think that I would be unbelievably surprised if it was. I, I have no idea... Well, okay, let's start off. Have you got any idea what is happening in the brains of people who are transgender? is Is there anything that's a signature which is going on? Are there any common threads? Yes and no.
1: The studies of the brain in trans populations, the study of the brain in sexual uh, in sexuality have found. Homosexuality is in the brain, gender identity is not. But very many trans people are also homosexual relative to their birth sex. So, depending on who's in your study, you'll get different confusing mixes because the stuff in the brain that's there because of homosexuality is easy to mistake for stuff in the brain for transsexuality. But when you pile it all together, Homosexuality is in the brain, both male and female. Gender identity is not. But some of the studies compared homosexual transsexuals with heterosexual cis people and said, see, transsexuality in the brain when, no, what they found was homosexuality in the brain. So that's the, as I say, people will cite whichever part, whichever studies line up with their, with their belief system. Uh, now there are other things in the brain. There are other, uh, uh, that's the part that's relevant for children. Adults show a completely different pattern. When I say adults, I mean people who didn't really start becoming gender dysphoric until adulthood. They knew they were different. They had, you know, some, they were a little bit uh, odd sometimes, especially socially when they were young, but basically heterosexual, usually married often, almost always male, uh, had a wife has kids and then in their thirties or forties decide, you know, before it's too late, a Caitlyn Jenner kind of a profile would never have picked the person out of a crowd, not a whiff of femininity about them until they get to a point in life where, you know, before it's too late, I gotta try this. Uh, Completely different pattern, Ooh, completely different pattern from the highly effeminate or tomboyish ones in kids where they stick out like a sore thumb. And when they come out as gay, you go, surprise, surprise. That adult onset type also seems to have a uh, brain signature to it, but unrelated to homo- uh, to sexual orientation, unrelated to homosexuality. It's related to a pattern unto itself and related to a paraphilia. The trans community hate, hate, hate this idea because it makes that kind of trans person seem less genuine when the evidence doesn't say that. The evidence actually is much stronger for their transition than the kids. But it's called autogynephilia. These are kind of like men who are not just into searching for the brain looking for women in the environment it wants to project signals of that femininity to the environment it's like they're attracted to the woman within and that motivates a large chunk of cross-dressers not the you know drag queen knee type but the more you know it's part of their sex thing Uh, for uh, people with other atypical sexualities again it will often have a cross-dressy or fetishy element to it. And for some people, you know, it's strong enough and concrete enough that they actually live perfectly healthy perfectly healthy lives as female. And that fetish is called autoganophilia. dirty word in large chunks of the trans community. And a popular idea in other chunks, take your pick. Okay, so they also seem to be different to the brain, but because of the paraphilia, rather than because of the sexual orientation and i think because they're mostly the activists they want to treat the children the way they wish they were treated when they were that age even though these are unrelated phenomena they have nothing to do with each other so the brain is in there but uh it's not in there and the ah you have a trans brain that's that's not it, it's you have a gay brain and for some people it's kind of like you're so gay, you really might be happier living as the other sex. And for some people it's, yep, you're really autogynephilic. You might be so autogynephilic, you might actually be happier living as the other sex. So unrelated motivations, they just, when they describe their subjective experience, they use the same words. Like if a, doctor, if a patient comes in, Doc, I have a headache, stress headache, head injury, migraine. They will all say headache. Their descriptions will sound the same. But the best thing for these people are completely unrelated to each other.
0: I have a friend who is trans and we threatened slash encouraged her to uh, go to a strip club at some point. And the fear in her eyes or at the potential of having to see a, a lady potentially naked in front of her was huge is that Uh, your front was trans which way so male to female still with the male bits okay uh, but just did not want to see a vagina at all that seems like the i I don't know what that is that seems like the opposite of autogynephilia but it's not
1: feminine or yes yeah very very much so yeah yeah That 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 i see that pattern
0: why? What's going on there?
1: Uh when I run into people like that, patients, friends, randoms, uh it's like, like a kind of gay shtick, but dialed up. And again, a lot of my gay friends, you know, breasts are one thing, but a vagina is just (laughs) icky.
0: (laughs) Yeah, okay. I know what you mean. What about the correlation between the trans community and autism? Fascinating. Uh,
1: I think this is another one of those Z producing both X and Y. I think the thing in the brain that's, Atypical, it the part of the brain that uh, 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 manifests uh, social relatedness. Mirror neurons, our natural herd instincts, something unusual with, as I say, the social instincts, which include the sexual instincts, and with that a bit off, you know, that gives us autism. Can also give us borderline personality disorder, which is again very extreme, hyper emotional kinds of relationships. And, you know, certain kinds of uh, 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 fetishes and autogynephilia, which again is just a neurologically based social set of instincts. So I think of that of tissue didn't develop in the usual way. These things start correlating because they're all related to that same clump of social neuroanatomy.
0: What did you mean when you said that gender identity is not in the brain if autism is something which is in the brain. Am I being thick here?
1: Uh, you no, know,
0: autism is in the brain,
1: and it's autogynephilia, the sexual interest pattern yes. that's in the
0: brain. Okay.
1: But having that sexual interest pattern and just using it as masturbation fantasy, living a perfectly right. happy life versus I have it and want
0: to change my body. Okay, so it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me a little bit like your proposed stance when it comes to people that are trans is that it is uh, a, an overshooting of a, a continuation of sexual orientation, like just way, way, way beyond where we see gay or lesbian at the moment. Is that right? Yes. Right. Uh, as a
1: matter of fact, th- sometimes we'll even joke, uh, uh, joke about it. Remember the Kinsey scale, zero to six? Now and then you'll meet somebody who's an 11. Right. Okay,
0: that's an interesting way to frame it. Um, Okay, so autism. So the difference between het and homo is very big, but the difference
1: between cis-homo and trans-homo is very slight. So we can detect these differences, but we can't distinguish these two from each other. Maybe in the future we will, but right now...
0: And this is why a lot of my gay friends douglas murray andrew doyle uh both of them have concerns around the trans movement being rehabilitated homophobia and uh, i think it's andrew that uses this example of a a guy who is a father and he had a son that was super effeminate and wanted to transition and wanted to become a girl and then they i don't know whether they went through surgery or not but they certainly at least renamed this boy into a girl and they interviewed the father afterward and he said, Do you know what it is? I'm just really happy that I don't have to see my little boy mincing around the garden anymore. And you go, Oh, that that's that's just homophobia. Like that's you you just really didn't want a gay son, and for you it's easier to believe that you've got a trans daughter than a gay son.
1: I hear that story a lot. Again, I don't want to say, you know, I have no idea what proportion of cases that represents, but I hear that story and that kind of story over and over again that there's some secondary reason or there's some tangential motivation that makes this a path of least resistance rather than
0: the best among the options is it india or some arab country that's got the highest rate of trans iran iran yeah because you're not allowed to be gay but you can be trans so this is that's like a, a government mandated bureaucratic version of of that okay well i mean that The fact that you see it as a almost like a single continuation, like a single continuum, sorry, from um, trans female to trans male with everything in between, and it's just sexual orientation. Sexual orientation takes you so far. The degree of aversion to the other sex is so great that you sometimes want to almost, you do want to repurpose your own body in order to fit the way that you see the world
1: it's it's fascinating uh and it goes together with several of the other fetishes the the paraphilias uh we often think of these them as having you know three dimensions you know attracted to male versus female attracted to old versus young and attracted to you know person out in the environment versus being that person and so we also get people you know if they're attracted to young, the pedophiles, we also get, you know, the age play fetishists, you know, the diaper fetishists. They want to be the child.
0: Oh, they're attra- that's turned inward.
1: So we have, as I say, so you can be attracted to women in the world. You can be attracted to... Uh, the woman inside you can be attracted to children in the world you can be attracted to the child inside so as i say and my guess fantasy on my part is that this is a mirror neuron thing this is part of our you know social neuroanatomy that's just tweaked or twerked or not quite right and it has these various various side effects uh, now, of course, the idea of you know projecting sexual receptivity well, that you know long predates our species, so the cross wiring between you know what sexual clues to give off and what sexual clues to be on the lookout for you know these are parallel nerve fibers. it's not hard to you know if they didn't myelinate properly, if they didn't densify properly if. There are just too few of them. They work like, it's like a hologram. If you take out half a hologram, you don't get half of the picture. You get the whole picture, but a bit blurry. That's how the brain works. So if you just are missing a few of the neurons, you know, if it's a lower density, you know, these can't distinguish as clearly what I'm supposed to be projecting versus what I'm supposed to be on the lookout for. And we kind of get these... And that's why if you're into one sexual atypicality, you may be into several others at the, at the same time. So, a- as I say, these, these interests kind of clump. Somebody who's attracted to amputees, stump fetishists they're called, and then the one with a long funny name, apotemnophilia, they want to be the amputee.
0: So interesting.
1: I don't know why everybody isn't a sex researcher.
0: It's it, i I feel like I should have been in a different life. Okay, so what about the relationship between the trans community and suicide? Because this a lot of the time is yes. seems to be one of the uh propositions that's put forward about why transitioning is so important, uh that yes. it, it's it's uh, really, really What can I say out loud?
1: Unfortunate is to understate it. Uh how the situation and the myth of the situation. And this is another one where the myth of that situation can easily be making the problem worse. Nobody was talking about, you know, trans and suicide until 2018. And it started with a particular paper. First author's name was Toomey survey, which claimed, you know, headlines all over, you know, large proportion, 40%, you know, uh, uh, of these kids, you know, uh, uh, attempt suicide or uh, 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 had uh, ideas about suicidality. Oh, my God, we have a correlation. And everybody was after the causality races, we have a correlation, blah, 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 transphobia is causing these people that uh, these kids to commit suicide. Not what the paper said. In fact, practically the reverse of what the paper said. And the paper itself, and then the headlines describing the paper, getting it backwards. The biggest, biggest, biggest mistake people are making is that they are confusing suicide to be a synonym for suicidality. Again, to the public, those are synonyms. To an expert, these are different phenomena. Suicide, very, very rare, mostly male. Mostly middle age, mostly impulsive, and mostly with lethal means in a person with a sincere intent to die. Suicidality is the ideation, the threats, the calls for help. It represents an indication of distress, not an intent to die. Mostly female, mostly adolescent, mostly uses a a a a. Uh, I don't want to say insincere; they are sincere cries for help. But what they need is attention and therapy. It's not an intent to die. Less lethal. Rarely lethal at all. Uh, lethality is elevated. I mean, it's higher than baseline, but it's not the forty percent of these kids are going to kill themselves, which is the you know emotional political manipulation of it. That's not true. This is, as I say. Genuine psychological distress for which they need therapy. Unfortunately, what it's being used as is essentially give me what I want or I'll kill myself. Oh, my God, that makes whatever they were asking for a medical necessity. Uh, No, when a kid has a tantrum, giving them the lollipop will keep them quiet for a minute. But that's not good parenting. It's we need to deal with the tantrums and the. Now, the 40 percent ish. That's not a trans thing. GLBT in general, it is an adolescent stress thing. Adolescents with any mental health problem in the book, roughly 40% if you ask them, sometime in their life will have had some suicidal ideation. I don't want to say it's normal. Again, it's a cause for therapy. It's not they're on their way to death if we don't do anything. Also, the idea strikes me as a bit weird. That, you know, people are saying, you know, it's five, six, seven percent of the population, 40 percent of them are suicidal. And no one ever noticed until five years ago. As I said, the whole story is a bit crazy. Uh, Anyway, uh, so the story is about suicidality, kids in genuine distress. But they keep saying, you know, when they put out a survey saying, oh, my God, it's the kids who transition, not as distressed and as i say we're going from the correlation to causality races at, 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 at. all of the clinical criteria you know you need a robust psychological assessment and if a person with you know profound men, uh, mental health issues you have to take care of those uh, those first so those kids wouldn't be getting transition services they're getting filtered out by the gatekeeping system so what happens when i take a survey of everybody i get All of the people, some of whom were rejected because they weren't healthy enough. And I get the ones who transitioned from who the poorest functioning ones were filtered out. So when I take a survey, the ones who transitioned have have higher mental health. Not because transition gave them higher mental health. It's that the ones with better mental health were allowed to transition in the first place. They were pre-selected.
0: Yeah, this pre-selected group.
1: That's why you can't go from correlation to causation. That's why it seems like it lowers suicidality and so on. Even though transition is not the common link. The common link is general mental health, peer functioning, and family functioning. So the association, the association, as I say, with suicidality and trans adolescents, there's a correlation, but not a causal one. This is an indication of distress indicating people in gen, as I say, who need psychotherapy, the studies which which suggest improvement, these kids weren't getting just hormones, they were getting therapy at the same time. We have no way of knowing, you know, their mental health improved because of the pills or shots, or the mental health improved because they were getting mental health treatment. We can't guarantee that that was the source of the improvement, but we sure should figure that out before we start removing healthy
0: tissue. I suppose if the concerns of people on the Internet about poorly researched transitioning for children occurring quickly, over the next few years, you will end up with a little bit more of a control for this because you're not going to have children that are being screened as thoroughly. This gatekeeping does seem to be slipping away unless I'm reading the wrong things on the internet, which I almost certainly probably am. Uh, My point being that you're going to be able to control at least a little bit more for how much uh, mental health robustness the individual has and also the amount of therapy that they go through if the rumors about their transing the kids with you you walk in you give them 100 grand and they go out of there with a vaginoplasty or whatever uh if that's the case then you would have the opportunity to study this more would that be right to say uh, the way things seem to be going internationally
1: I, uh, I i don't think it's quite that pattern uh europe has already figured this out uh Ah, uh, Finland, Sweden, the UK, uh, France, Spain is now grappling with it. They've now pretty much put an end to the social transition on demand. And one after another, their healthcare departments are saying, you know, hormones and blockers only as part of a registered uh, 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 experiment. This is no longer, you know, treatment. Uh, of course. Uh, Uh, as a matter of course so europe has already put a stop to it and now any liberalization of that gatekeeping will be one experiment at a time which is where we were 10 years ago before all this went crazy uh in the us the customer knows best these clinics aren't recording outcomes because they already keep claiming lots of success and nobody wants to document the lack of success. So if a patient goes away, they don't want to go find that patient and find out that it was a patient who regretted it. Sure enough, the insurance companies and so on and so on. And now, you know, the political activists and all of the people whose faces are on the line, you know, and we're off to the races. So with the political and financial pressures so enormous in the U S It's hard for me to imagine a real world scenario in which an honest attempt to gather a matched control group will exist. There are going to be my patients were still here, which are whatever percentage happy ones. And then the who knows what proportion we will never find out. And they don't want to find out lost to follow up. We're not going to call them regretters. They just stopped coming back for their shots. Mm.
0: Well, I I think that what you're seeing is perhaps yet another externality of what happens with a paid for medical system with the incentives aligned like you've got in america you know it's the only country in the world i think except for australia where drug companies are allowed to advertise on television Hmm. and for someone that lived the first 30 years of his life in the uk coming out and Hearing ask your doctor about at the end of an advert is so bizarre. I'm like, what well, do I ask my doctor about this thing? I tell him what's wrong, and he tells me what I'm so. It's not. I don't go and request. It's not like a barber shop. I don't get to, a pick and mix. I don't get to go in and say, oh yeah, I've heard about this particular drug. I really think that I should take it. So yeah, I think that part of I what-
1: almost wanted to run it. It's like I, I I want to do mock commercials, American medical system where the patient knows best.
0: Yep. Yeah, it's very bizarre, very, very, very bizarre, and um, I I kind of get this sense. One of the next battlegrounds that I could see, if I was to make a little bit of a prediction, I would think that circumcision is going to be something which will become a a more of a hot topic over the next few years. Yeah. Um, it, in the UK, circumcision outside of the Jewish community is basically not a thing in the US, non-circumcision is basically not a thing. Like way, way, way. And I tweeted about it the other day because Bill Maher uh, had posted about it on his podcast. It just like, I like some of Brill's stuff, but this was such a brainlet take. It was completely insane. And uh, I tweeted about it and a bunch of people came up in the replies and it seems like there's a big financial incentive there as well. Like a huge financial incentive for procedures circumcision procedures to go ahead i was like who's making money off tiny little foreskins but apparently there is a market for everything and that's another one of them so yeah when the incentives get aligned in this way yeah all manner of weird oddities and strange externalities come out on the other side
1: that's i I, I would not be at all surprised if uh uh circumcision is in the distance uh, or we're at the end of circumcision. No, wait a second. Let me work on this part. I, I, there, there's a better I, I haven't found it yet, but there's a better joke in there, the end of there the somewhere. end somewhere. Uh, the tip of the end, the end of the tip. Uh, but for the American system. That question hasn't been asked nearly in the way that I think it should uh, not circumcision, but. Uh, it's even though. Within the U.S., they keep saying all the American medical associations, yada, 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 yada. They're missing the key word. The key word is all the American medical associations, which are now pretty isolated relative to the rest of the world. That's the question. In the rest of the world with socialized medicine, you know, there's a committee deciding this and deciding where the money goes and what, you know, meets what level of criteria. In the U.S., they, we, depend on, you know, these professions to self-regulate. Well, they dropped the ball on this one, really, and being perfectly explicit, not for the children's interests. For their own guild interests doctors don't want the government telling doctors what to do period at the moment it happens to be about trans children but the medical establishment is not protecting or doing anything but trans children they're just keeping there from there being the beginnings of a slippery slope of the government telling doctors what to do. That's what all of these medical associations are agreeing on. This just happens to be the issue of it. Uh, This just happens to be the the issue over which, over which they're saying it. None of them have engaged in any of the kind of, you know, systematic scientific review Europe has, but the U S has not, you know, their policies uh, 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 just don't cite the research or everybody keeps saying decision has to be made by a mental health professional. Have you noticed that the mental health professionals don't have a treatment? It, all of this is left up to, to guesswork, really. Uh, and again, they, they've said explicitly when WPATH removed, removed there are no more age minimums. Took all of them, all of them out. Uh, uh, age minimums for whichever kind of uh, uh, transition. Zero citations cited for justification. But what the person in charge of the chapter said was, they didn't. Doctors getting sued in case they gave whatever transition to a service to a kid under that age. I'm sorry, but isn't that what? standards are for so it's a document that essentially says use clinical judgment and you shouldn't be held responsible for the uh, for the outcomes of your decisions if the medical systems the medical establishment has not been able to see through to the science on this what can what should right so to me it's uh if you can't figure this one out if you can't be trusted with this what can you be trusted with and so it's time for the u.s as i say to do what the rest of the world has done and take out all the middle people and it's not like the u.s has great health care outcomes to be proud of
0: dr james Cantor, ladies and gentlemen if people want to check out the stuff that you do online and keep up to date with you where should they go
1: Uh, That's a good question. Usually Twitter or uh, jamescantor.org.
0: James, I appreciate you. Thank you for today. Pleasure's mine.